This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon, I'm Jolani Tulom. The death toll from an attack last week by gunmen in northwestern Nigeria's Kaduna state has doubled to more than 130 people. State Governor Nasir al-Rufai says the motive appeared to be ethnic. Al-Rufai says police are still investigating the gunman's motive. The attack last Friday came the day before a presidential election was supposed to be held, but electoral authorities delayed the vote by one week due to logistical challenges. More than 100,000 people have been displaced by factional fighting and lawlessness in Burkina Faso, most within the past two months. That's according to a UN report. It says that for the first time in history, the country is facing massive internal displacement. The government and humanitarian groups had begun a $100 million aid plan to help the thousands of displaced people. Burkina Faso is a landlocked country in West Africa that borders the Sahel region, countries of Niger and Mali to the north, where militant groups some linked to al-Qaeda and Islamic State have carried out attacks for years. Several people have been infected with chikungunya in the DRC's capital, Kinshasa, and its neighboring province of Congo Central. This is the second time the viral disease has been reported in the Central African country. No deaths have been reported so far. Chikungunya is not a contagious disease, but is spread by mosquitoes with symptoms similar to malaria. Jean-Noël Bamwezi reports from Kinshasa. The outbreak has erupted in the Mongafula health zone here in the Congolese capital city Kinshasa and in the Kasangulu health zone in the neighboring province of Congo Central. Several clinics around the affected health zones have admitted patients with clinical signs similar to the malaria symptoms, but at the end of the day, doctors concluded it's indeed the chikungunya disease. The province of Congo Central, the city of Kasangulu, is too close to this country's capital city, Kinshasa, and this makes it very easy for mosquitoes to travel between the two cities, spreading the chikungunya disease. A Tanzanian court has convicted a Chinese woman dubbed the Ivory Queen for her role in trafficking tusks from more than 400 elephants. Yang Fenlan was convicted of trafficking 860 tusks between the year 2000 and 2014 in Dar es Salaam. Two Tanzanian men were also found guilty for their role in the illegal commerce. Judge Huruma Shaidi says the prosecution proved the case against the accused was beyond reasonable doubt. The sentences are yet to be announced, but Fenlan faced 
faces up to 30 years in prison. Wildlife campaigners have called the conviction one of the most cases import, one of the most important cases for several years. And finally, the United Nations Human Rights Chief has expressed concern at the fate of civilians attempting to flee areas of northern Syria, still under control of ISIS militants. The BBC's Emojin Folks has a story. The UN believes up to a million people, thousands of them displaced, are now in an extremely vulnerable situation in northern Syria. Those still in areas controlled by Islamic State, among them many women and children, are subjected to targeted killing and abductions by IS itself, which is trying to prevent them from leaving, and intense air and ground strikes by the US-led coalition. Michel Bachelet called on all those fighting to do their utmost to protect civilians and to provide them with safe passage. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tudor. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa giving you an African perspective. It is eight minutes after five Central African time. Good afternoon. Welcome to to it. It's Africa Digest uh, on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Luanda Maume. We apologize for the late start there, but uh, let's get straight on to your top stories. The Senegalese go to the polls on Sunday and Zimbabwean president under fire for his statement. 
where he allegedly threatened human rights defenders. And in, in economics, you'll be hearing that the EU lawmakers vote in favor of starting negotiations with the U.S. to on a deal to lower tariffs on industrial goods. And in sports, today marks 100 days to go before the start of the Cricket World Cup. Let's get straight on to our first stories. Now, presidential elections in Senegal are expected to be held on the 24th of February. That is on Sunday. Last month, two opposition leaders, Khalifa Sal, who has no relation to the president, a popular politician and former mayor of Dakar, and Karim Wade, a former minister and the son of former president Abdelai Wade, were both found to be ineligible to stand for office due to convictions for corruptions. To help us analyze this situation, Channel Africa spoke to Paul Melly, a consulting fellow with the Africa program at Chatham House, and Francois Patuel, in the West Africa Francophone researcher at the Amnesty International West and Central Africa Region Office in Senegal. I think Senegal is ready to host the elections. Of course, as you've just um, been outlining in the headlines, there are problems. But Senegal is a country with a very long history of um, constitutional elections. Uh, People in Senegal Uh, actually voted in the colonial era in in some of the main towns, even before the First World War. And in the era of modern politics, uh, Senegal, even when it was uh, effectively a one-party state, nevertheless uh, followed a path of peaceful constitutional electoral politics. And in the democratic era, which really developed from the late 70s and came to sort of full fulfillment, if you like, in the 1990s, Mm. beginning of the century, those elections have been competitive. So we've seen uh, on two occasions incumbent presidents actually defeated at the ballot box, accepting the result and leaving power. So in that long-term sense, yes, Senegal is ready. Mm. And what is a bit troubling at the moment is that in a country with this long history, we've seen these uh, really quite shocking and serious incidents of electoral violence in in recent days but i'm not sure that uh, delaying the elections for example by a week would uh, would help matters i think uh, the elections senegal is probably as ready as it's going to be even if uh, there are lessons to be drawn about how to um, better manage the process uh, for the second round if there is one or in mm. future electoral contests. Mm. Now we see that President Sall seems to enjoy a lot of support and it's said that he might actually bag these elections for a second term. What has he done right in his administration that would give him such popularity? Well, when he was elected in 2012, he really ran on a, if you like, a, a twin platform. Uh, and I can remember being in Dakar at uh, his closing electoral rally and there were really two very strong messages one was the restoration of republican governance values Mm. um, that's to say good governance standards that had become eroded in the final years of the previous president Abdelay Wad but the other aspect in which I think people tend to forget was he also laid a very strong emphasis on improving everyday living conditions. Mm. And while in the last year or two been some worrying problems on the governance side and in terms of uh, those Republican values, in terms of actual development and economic management and particularly the delivery of services at the grassroots in the rural areas where 
still probably half or more than half the population live, the government has got a very strong track record. Francois, how accessible is the country during this time of elections uh, by foreign and local media? I mean, it does enjoy a stable media industry with both private and public. But are, are there any trends that you are, you are seeing as Amnesty International? Well, on freedom of expression, one of our concerns is that, you know, there's been laws adopted uh, in recent years which, um, which are vaguely worded and which could be used against uh, journalists who are a bit critical of the authorities. Mm. Uh, for instance, uh, the press code that was adopted in, in June 2017, um, you know, provides for prison sentences for press offenses. The criminal code also still provides for prison terms for, for press offenses, including insulting the head of state or publishing false news. Um, um, you know, that, that's the kind of um, legislation that could be used against, uh, against journalists in Senegal. For the moment, um, we haven't seen those cases being brought to court against journalists, but certainly against, you know, um, artists, rappers, uh, activists in general. Yes, there, there has been cases, those cases brought to, to, to court. So Kode, who is a, a singer, uh, she shared uh, um, criti- criticisms uh, on an audio file on a private WhatsApp group, mm-hmm. um, and she was uh, detained for several days because of that uh, message on a private WhatsApp group. I mean, this is, this is a private WhatsApp group. This is social media, but on mm. a private group. And she, was, she spent about a week in detention, um, and she was accused of, you know, defamation against the president uh, and publishing false news. This mm. is the kind of very insidious pressure um, that journalists and people who are critical of the authorities, including bloggers and activists, will be you know, where we will be picking on. You know, it, cre- it creates a kind of fear where people will think twice about criticizing the president or um, the authorities if they know they can be, uh, they can be targeted. That is François Patuel. He is the West Africa Francophone researcher at Amnesty International West and Central Africa Regional Office in Senegal. And you also heard there from Paul Melly, who is a consulting fellow with the Africa program at Chatham House. They were both speaking there to Ayandam Kwanazi. Now, Zimbabwean President Emerson Nangagwa is under fire for his statement over the weekend where he allegedly threatened human rights defenders. The threats to deal with future protesters using military force comes following a military crackdown a few weeks ago during fuel protests. Mnangagwa also threatened civil society groups, doctors, lawyers and foreign diplomats for assisting protesters. However, Amnesty International has urged Mnangagwa to act as a unifying leader. Simon Muchema on the story. Zimbabweans have raised concern over President Emerson Mnangagwa's statements over the weekend where chilling threats were issued against human rights defenders. Mnangagwa told his party supporters at a thank you rally in Mwenez on Saturday that those who want to be violent would be dealt with in the same manner protesters were dealt with in January. The Zimbabwean leader went on to threaten doctors and lawyers for assisting those who were protesting and added that soldiers will be deployed like what transpired during protests. Fear has now gripped the nation such that even when seeking comments, civil society groups refuse to comment against Mnangagwa. Meanwhile, Amnesty International says Mnangagwa's statements were unfortunate. Comments attributed to President Emerson Mnangagwa, which we have uh, verified both via text as well as via audio recording of his statement, are deeply troubling. 
and unwarranted, in particular because they come on the backdrop of a few weeks in which his national army, together with other wider security force establishment in the country, unleashed a major crackdown that resulted in the extrajudicial assassination of Zimbabweans who were protesting, as well as others who were not protesting. The crackdown also resulted in a fear society being established in Zimbabwe. So at a time when families are still mourning, when the country is deeply troubled and is in search of a unifying leadership statement and inspiration that should come from above, the statements are reckless and irresponsible. They fuel a division and undermine the prospects of building an inclusive society which is rights-respecting. At least 12 people were shot dead, more than 78 shot and injured, and more than 1,000 arrested when protesters fell victim to a military crackdown in urban areas. The events in January were widely condemned internationally, with some countries calling for more sanctions against Mnangagwa and followers. Ordinary citizens commenting on social media says Munangagwa could be worse than former President Robert Mugabe. Ahead of the Saturday rally, Zimbabweans have been questioning the involvement of the military in the civilian unrest. Zimbabwe Democracy Institution ZDI senior researcher Bekezela Gumbo told Channel Africa that Munangagwa's statements were shocking. Actually, the kind of Zimbabwean template that he has been trying to create internationally, it actually destroys everything else. When someone is saying he's committed to re-engagement, one, two, he's committed to dialogue and reconciliation in Zimbabwe, you don't issue such threats. It actually confirms that what Makaisa once said, that Emerson Nako is just a reptile that has shed its skin. Continuation of the old dispensation and the enforcer of such. Why am I saying so? We don't expect a president who claims to be truly reformed to continue issuing such threats. We don't expect the opposition to trust him in whatever dialogue calls that he makes. If he is the one issuing on television that Arikuzwambura won. Because from anyone's perspective, you will see that Arikuzwambura, people were beaten, were beaten during protests, genuine protests. People were killed. People were maimed, people were raped when the government unleashed soldiers and the, the president says Tagawa Zwambura and Varugu Zwamburika. It means that he is confirming that uh, he is the one who issued the directive. While Mnangagwa is engaging with Western countries, selling a notion that Zimbabwe is open for business, back home his people are getting killed randomly. Opposition leader Nelson Chamisa has since refused to dialogue with Mnangagwa at a time when ordinary people, including opposition leaders, are rotting in prison. On one hand, Nick Mangwana, secretary in the information ministry, accused the media for misquoting Mnangagwa, but researchers says Mnangagwa is now using propaganda. Now to our international engagement agenda, now what does that mean? It has shattered everything. And to our dialogue, you know, re-engagement internally in the country, now it has shattered everything because people no longer trust him. They cannot trust him if he says that. As a minister of information, you know their job. It is to try to do PR you know, for, for the president and to try and sugarcoat whatever the president says and to be spin doctors. That is spin, spin doctoring meant for firefighting for the president because he has already uttered statements that were uncalled for. So it is their job to try to, you know, to sugarcoat what he says. But the reality is that he said it in the context of people who were killed, people who were, people who were beaten, people who were brutalized. 
So now anyone in Zimbabwe would take it as such. So now for saying to say he was misquoted, it seems to be more like propaganda because in most countries, ministries like the Ministry of Information, they are propaganda ministries. That was Begezela Gumbo speaking on Nick Mangwana's reaction to Mnangagwa's threats. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Welcome back. It's almost 22 minutes after 5 Central African time. You are still with Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Luanda Maume, and I'm your standing host, uh, standing in there for Spumelele Zondi. Now let's get on to the next story. Now more than half a million babies reportedly died as a result of armed conflict between 2013 and 2017 in the 10 worst affected countries. This according to a new report by the British charity Save the Children. It reveals that more children, almost one in five, are living in areas affected by armed conflict and war than any other... any time in more than 20 years. For more on this issue, now we are joined on the line by Kian Salakia, Conflict and Humanitarian Policy and Advocacy Advisor at Save the Children. Kian, good afternoon and welcome to Channel Africa. Thank you very much. Good afternoon to you. Thank you for joining us. Now, the report reveals that the number of children killed in today's wars actually far exceeds the number of fighters dying. This is very scary. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the numbers um, that you've introduced me with tell one part of the story, which is the scale of the problem. So we're looking at nearly a fifth of all children globally living in conflict zones, um, and those children becoming more and more at risk. So the comparison with the number of combatants, I think, is telling, but to be honest, probably isn't that surprising. Um, So children are increasingly being bombed from the sky, being denied access. So the deaths... occurring due to a range of reasons are far exceeding the number of combatants. It's, it's much more dangerous to be a child now than it is to be a combatant in conflict zones. Um, and the, the, the key purpose of the report was to call on states and state actors, those with influence, to really turn aside and stop this war on children. Now, your analysis also clearly shows that the situation is getting worse for children. What can you att- we attribute this growth to? Again, sadly, it is um, seemingly getting worse. So this is the highest number of children living uh, in conflict zones since the Cold War, which is bad stuff in itself. It's also 30 million more than the year before. So the numbers that we're talking about are for 2017. In 2016, approximately 30 million children less were living in conflict. So there's definitely an upturn. Um, And I, I think... The, the main reasons for that are um, a culture of impunity. So the fact that over the last five or ten years, when we look at some of the most um, notable conflicts around the world, there have been perpetrators of violations against children, and those perpetrations have not been um, 
taken to court, they've not been perpetrated, uh, they've not been held to account, and that's just kind of created the culture where it's okay to violate the rights of children, and um, for us and for many other people, we think that is not acceptable, and we're calling on states um, to turn that tide to, to make sure that perpetrated violations are being held to account. Talk to us about some of these countries that are most dangerous for children to live in today. Yeah, our report um, lists 10 of the worst countries affected by conflict. And um, we did a similar thing last year, and we're seeing a lot of similarities. So, for example, Yemen and Syria are both still in there, but 6 out of the 10 are from the continent of Africa. So they include Somalia, they include South Sudan and Nigeria, and the Central African Republic. And I think... Um, the, the combination of the number of children affected by conflict and the verified violations against them combined are what we use to come up with this 10. So we're not saying that it's only these 10 where there are children affected by conflict, but these are 10 of the, the particularly dangerous conflicts for children. Let's talk about the political will to, to intervene in these situations, to be able to, 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 to rescue the, 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 the situation for the children. Is there any? I think uh, we would probably say no, because, you know, if you look at what's possible, so um, improved access, holding perpetrators to account, there are, there's, there's so much at the disposal of states that they can do, and we're just not seeing enough of it done. And so the logical conclusion from that is that states don't feel like they're under enough pressure to do it, that they, they don't, there isn't that political will to take those steps. The, I guess the other side to that is where there has been action taken. It can, it, like, it, this, isn't, this isn't a hopeless task, this isn't a hopeless endeavour. Things can be done. So on things like child recruitment, recruitment of um, children and youth in armed groups, where there has been effort and focus and attention, we've seen over 100,000 children um, reunified and released from armed groups over uh, roughly a 10-year period. So things can be done, but it, as you say, it's... The lack of um, political action, the lack of leadership of key states as well, um, is definitely missing. Now, you, you as Save the Children have uh, diagnosed the problems through through this report. Are there any recommendations that you make to turn around the situation? Yeah, the report, which again, it was, it was launched at the Munich Security Conference, um, which was taking place in Germany over the weekend, and that's a, a collection of states to talk about uh, security and defence. And in the report that we launched there, we have 22 recommendations, which probably isn't everything that we would ask of them, and within that, they include specific things that they can do in three broad areas. So the first area is to uphold standards, and that's things like, as I was talking about, child recruitment. The, the norms and the rules of law upholding them themselves. So states have a responsibility to abide by the laws and rules that they're signed up to. The second area of things is holding perpetrators to account. So making sure where um, state actors, in particular individuals, are uh, bombing children indiscriminately, where sexual violence is being used as a weapon of war, where denial of access is being used as a weapon of war, that those people don't get off the hook, that they're held to account. So that's another area. And then the final area is to take practical action on the ground. So that includes things like making sure that children living in these conflict zones, the 420 million children, that they have access to education, that they have access to psychosocial support, the type of interventions that allow them to preserve their childhoods and secure them a better future. So there's lots that can be done. Um, it, it requires political will, it requires investment, um, and the report essentially is a call on states to take those steps. Well, Ken, Ken, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you very much.
That is Kian Salakia, Conflict and Humanitarian Policy and Advocacy Advisor at Save the Children, talking there to us from in there in London. We are about to do your news headlines. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after this. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and and, (laughs) and do my part and do it really, really well. Good afternoon, I'm Jolani Tulo making headlines. The death toll from an attack last week by gunmen in northwestern Nigeria's Kaduna state has doubled to more than 130 people. More than 100,000 people have been displaced by factional fighting and lawlessness in Burkina Faso, most within the past two months. And finally, the United Nations Human Rights Chief has expressed concern at the fate of civilians attempting to flee areas of northern Syria still under the control of ISIS militants. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Bari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Twenty-nine minutes before six Central African time, you are still with Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is uh, Luanda Maume. I'm standing in for Pumelele Zondi, who's sitting here, late. Not not as usual, but late. Anyway, let's continue with the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Higher education in South Africa must involve in step with the needs of the country and produce graduates with relevant skills that can enrich their chosen industries as well as the broader society. That's according to the educational expert Dr. Divya Singh, Chief Academic Officer for the investment holding company Stadio Multiversity. Singh says technological advances are fundamental to current trends and this will have a bearing on the type of professionals required in the 21st century workplace. She elaborates. Look, we are going to need graduates. Whether we have the technology revolution or not, you're still going to need graduates. But when we're talking about 
the higher education, the tertiary education that you speak about, I think we're going to look at a more transformed nuance to the education that we're offering. For us to continue to do it in the manner that we're doing it now will not serve the purpose for the future. May you give us insight as to why you believe that social intelligence will be an indispensable skill in the workplace? I think the issue, as we move forward into the development that we're beginning to see, disciplines are not stayed. Disciplines are beginning to be meshed. You're beginning to be integrated and synergies between different kinds of jobs. And jobs are going to be changing also. So when we speak about social intelligence, it's not just the same, your science, technology, engineering. We're talking about the art and the issues around values as well. And if we look at what the research is showing us is that there are important aspects of the new workplace where we're looking for attitudes of creativity and innovation, where we're looking for critical thinking and complex problem solving and issues of cognitive flexibility. These require a holistic development, not just the technical or the discipline specific. Your other big issue is going to be that whilst we can look at that on the workplace sector, graduates of the future or people for the future also need to understand the social compact that we have and the social consciousness. If you want to consider sustainability, the drivers of social consciousness and social responsibility are integral to sustainability and development. And that is why I believe that holistic development will be your technical skill as well as very definitely your social intelligence that comes with it. What are the changes that you are hoping for in the higher education? I would like us to begin to revisit our curriculum. And when we look at our curriculum, we begin to integrate, as I said, those important drivers of the discipline-specific and the technical skills that we also look very specifically at applied learning and what it is that industry and jobs of the future are going to be looking for because we need to put our graduates who are relevant to the workplace who are able to do the jobs that they need to do. We have moved to a highly technologically dependent society. Will there still be a need for employees? Now, I still think that there will be the need for employees. Look, we are going to see some jobs that will decline. We're going to see some jobs that won't be impacted, but we're also going to see new jobs coming out. And I believe that perhaps the jobs that are more repetitive and more mechanical in nature, we might find that those jobs will decline. But where you have jobs that where there is a demand for innovation, where there's a demand for perception, where there's a demand for creativity, I think those jobs will always be a need for them. To wrap it up, Divya, as much as the youth may follow your theory, they'll still be seen as underqualified because all they have is one year experience from their internship. So how do we then bridge that gap? When we look at the graduates and when we look at curriculum design and development, we need to move away from the unifocus approach of development. We need to start looking at multi-inter and transdisciplinarity of our curricula, that as we look at what's going to happen to the future, that we teach students the job within the broader environment in which they're going to be working in. So I agree with you. The idea of the single focused curriculum is going to be problematic for the future. And we need to look at teaching our graduates adaptability, resilience, how to think, but I believe interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary curricula and preparedness is going to be the way for the future. That is Divya Singh, Chief Academic Officer for the Investment Holding Company, Stadio Multiversity, on the line, talking there to Nombu Tango.
Medical experts say there continues to be an alarming threat to the health and wealth of many nations posed by antimicrobial resistance, commonly known as antibiotic resistance. Globally, some 700,000 deaths annually and serious economic damages results from infectious infections caused by resistant bacteria. According to the WHO, antimicrobial resistance is the ability of, of microorganisms like bacteria, viruses and some parasites to stop an antimicrobial such as antibiotics, antivirals, antimalarials from working against it. More from Professor Adrian Brink, an associate professor for the Division of Infectious Diseases and HIV Medicine at the University of Cape Town. Well, it's growing at a rapid rate. It is predicted by 2050 that 10 million people will die as a result directly of antibiotic resistance and no antibiotics to treat serious infections. So from a public health point of view, it will globally become a bigger problem than deaths due to malaria or HIV or childhood illnesses and malnutrition and so on. Is the threat just as serious in the fields of animal health, agriculture and environment? No, the threat is for humans and for animals and for agriculture. So from a food safety point of view, the resistance affects everybody and therefore the concept of a one health approach to resistance has emerged. So you can try and contain the resistance with different ways in humans But if you don't contain resistance in domestic animals, with other words, pets, or your big commercial farming of chickens or cattle or pigs, or even subsistence farming with small farmers, um, rural farmers, it will affect them too. And because the same bacteria of humans and animals carry the resistance, it also eventually appears in the environment and in the water. It's all over. And have we seen any impact of antibiotic resistance on the economies of many countries? Yes, that's an interesting question. There is some evidence already, and once again, based on a very, very large, famous report by now, the so-called O'Neill Report, which was commissioned by the British government. The resistance by 2050 will wipe off 100 trillion dollars off the world economy. Humans stay in hospital longer because you can't treat them, there's no antibiotics. The complications of antibiotic resistance, so direct health costs, but also in food production where the animals that are used in commercial farming are threatened, it eventually leads then directly from that point of view also to loss in resources. Compounding the problem, I understand, is the fact that it's estimated that only half of antibiotics are correctly used. What is largely to blame for this? It's very complicated. First of all, I don't think that people are educated when they're tiny at school about what antibiotics are and where do they work for. You know, people use them for a cold and a flu or when they have a cough, and those are caused by viruses and antibiotics don't work for them starts with, in my opinion, preschool. Like you taught to wash your hands after you've been to the bathroom, all those kind of basic things, and antibiotics is one of them. Then the issue of resistance perhaps is not treated well at undergraduate level and at postgraduate level for doctors and nurses. 
they don't know what stewardship is and so on. So there's also pressure on them, particularly GPs, to prescribe an antibiotic because the patient who goes there with a fever, even if it's not a bacteria, demands an antibiotic. They think it's some magical bullet that cures everything. So it's hugely, hugely complicated from that point of view. On the one hand, you have a demand by the patient who wants an antibiotic, even if you or she doesn't know they don't need it, and then pressure on the GP and indiscriminate use. People until recently thought, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We can have another new antibiotic for treatment of a urinary tract or a lung infection, and that's not happening. The last oral antibiotic for humans was produced probably 15, 20 years ago. Now, with this being such a complex issue, do you think that the fight is being addressed at the highest political level? In a way, yes, but not entirely. What had happened was it was the first time that the United Nations had a special assembly in 2016 to discuss resistance. Now, humanly, normally, health does not appear on the agenda of the full assembly of the United Nations, but it was the second time that health did appear and it was resistance. So there was a call for action for every country to do a containment plan, a resistance plan. So because of this, many governments and most governments in Africa will have one, just to put it on paper and just to show the WHO and the United Nations we have an AMR plan. But whether that plan is actually implemented and whether it gets the backup and support by the Minister of Health is a different story. So it's sort of political lip service. However, the problem is that the Ministry of Health can't impact on agriculture and fisheries. So you need commitment from those ministers. And then, because it's also an education thing, you also need the Ministry of Education to incorporate it in undergraduate and schools. And because it also involves environment and water, you would need those ministries to get involved. If I understand you correctly, Professor, it now means that uh, a lack of action in one country, region or sector can undermine progress in others. Correct. Because people travel, they migrate, they immigrate, they might become refugees and then they bring that resistance across border and then it goes into the water system, patient to patient, person to person contact. There's no point in having a magnificent stewardship plan and reducing consumption in humans and animals and so on and addressing the issue in environment and water if it's not done next door in your neighbours. That is Professor Adrian Brink, an associate professor for the Division of Infectious Diseases and HIV Medicine at the University of Cape Town here in South Africa on the line, talking there to Elizabeth Lidicha. That brings us to 43 minutes after 5 Central African time. Coming up is the economics update with Tracy Pumgat. But before we get there, let's take a short break. We're back after this. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time 
and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African time. Humanity, Women in Unity with Dr. Amalea Gones Malka. Every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Good evening. Zimbabwe's black market foreign currency exchange rates have remained fairly stable for almost two months. Dealers attribute this to a reduction in demand. Zimbabwe is currently experiencing foreign currency shortages, which have led people to resort to the parallel market. A forex dealer operating at the Eastgate shopping mall says a week ago the transfer exchange rate reached a peak of $4 against $1, but the premiums quickly tumbled. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says the Constitution recognizes traditional leadership as an important instrument of development and progress. He was speaking at the annual opening of the National House of Traditional Leaders in Parliament. Among the bills that National Assembly will consider is the Traditional Leadership and Governance Framework Amendment Bill. Ramaphosa has made a commitment to work with traditional leaders to accelerate economic growth and create jobs in the country. In the State of the Nation Address, we identified five key tasks that should underpin everything that we do this year. These are tasks in which traditional leaders have a critical role to play. And our first task, naturally, is to accelerate inclusive economic growth and create jobs. The most direct way out of poverty for our people is through employment, small and medium enterprises, as well as exploiting the agricultural wealth that our country has. We cannot create employment without a growing economy and far greater levels of investment. Still in South Africa, the country's energy minister, Jeff Hadebe, says the country needs to invest more in rebuilding confidence in its ability to supply power for investors to consider it as preferred investment destination. He was speaking at a conference in Johannesburg after Eskom was forced to implement some of the worst blackouts in years. Problems at the cash-strapped power utility have negatively affected business, including key sectors such as mining. President Ramaphosa recently announced a plan to split the parastatal into three entities to make it more efficient. However, labor unions and some within the ruling party view the plan with suspicion. Nigeria's Naira weakened this week on the forward market and stocks fell as investors worried that delaying elections for a week could lead to a contested result while fueling uncertainty. Stocks dropped over 2% to a one-week low. Analysts say the postponement could disrupt Nigeria's economic and market rebound. The Japanese carmaker Honda has confirmed that its plan to close a factory in Britain will lead to a loss of 3,500 jobs. The plant is due to close in three years' time. The BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes reports. Honda's CEO Takahiro Hachiko said the decision to end production in the United Kingdom was not related to Britain leaving the European Union. 
Instead, he said the decision was driven by the dramatic changes taking place in the world car markets, in particular the need to move rapidly to electric vehicles. In that light, he said, the UK's position as a global manufacturing hub is no longer viable. Honda's European chief, Katsushi Inoue, said the decision had not been taken lightly and that he deeply regretted how unsettling this announcement will be for the Honda workforce in the United Kingdom. The US dollar is trading at 359.85 Nigerian Naira, 10.39 Botswana Pula at 99.41 Kenyan Shilling and at 11.84 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 3.71 Brazilian Hale, 66.20 Russian Ruble, 71.33 Indian Rupee, 6.76 Chinese Yuan, and 14.08 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,324 and platinum at $805 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $66.18 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. It is, it is just about 10 minutes before 6 Central African tablets. Get your sports. Here's Tabis Ontema. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabis Ontema with your latest sports update at this hour, starting with football news. European Premier Club football competition is back tonight. The focus falls on Enfield as Liverpool welcomed German giants Bayern Munich. Liverpool manager Jürgen Klopp spent seven years battling against Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga, but he says there is nothing personal at play in tonight's Champions League clash with the German champions. We have our own targets, we have our own aims, we want to be strong, we want to show... Um, because in Germany, a lot of people were talking now about the atmosphere at Anfield, and in, in, in especially in, they were talking about that we are maybe the most emotional club in world football. So, emotion, in my opinion, is a very positive thing. So let's show that. Let's make it a very emotional place. Let's make it a very lively place on the pitch, on the stands, and uh, yeah, and let's enjoy that game together. It's a tough one against a really strong and very experienced team, but we are strong as well, and that's what we have to show. The other Champions League match scheduled for tonight sees Olympic Lyonnais at home against FC Barcelona. With today marking 100 days to go before the start of the 2019 Cricket World Cup in England and Wales on May 30th, Channel Africa's Neto Chemani looks at which teams are likely to be at the showpiece event. Afghanistan have made rapid strides since featuring in the 2015 World Cup for the first time, but had to endure a nail-biting qualification competition in Zimbabwe to make the 2019 edition. They are not to be underrated. At the 2018 Asia Cup, they beat Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and tied against eventual champions India. Australia, the defending champions and five-time winners, are the most successful country in the tournament's history, beating New Zealand by seven wickets in the final on home turf in 2015. But they have struggled for form since the team was embroiled in a ball-tempering scandal that rocked the game last year. 
They were hammered by England 9-1 across two series in 2018 and followed it up with series defeats over the home summer against South Africa and India. Perennial underachievers Bangladesh will be looking to improve on their 2015 quarterfinal finish after some heartening performances in the United Kingdom. They qualified for the semi-finals of the 2017 Champions Trophy from a group that also featured hosts England, Australia and New Zealand. In 2018, Bangladesh won 13 of their 20 ODI matches behind only England and India in terms of the number of wins. The Tigers will rely on the experience of key players like Mashraf Mortaza, Tamim Iqbal, Shakib Al-Hassan and Mishfikur Rahim who are all expected to play their fourth 50-over World Cup. Host England have featured in every World Cup since the tournament was established in 1975 but have still to win it, with the last of their three losing appearances in the final back in 1992. An embarrassing exit at the 2015 edition, culminating in a defeat by Bangladesh so England go out of the group stage for the third time in five World Cups. Captained by former Ireland batsman Ian Morgan, England have risen to the top of the 50-over rankings. Home advantage, however, may not be that much help. This will be the fifth time that England have staged the World Cup, their best performance under Virat Kohli's leadership. Heavyweights India will enter the World Cup as favourites alongside England. The second-ranked one-day side in the world have been in fine form with recent series victories in Australia and New Zealand. India had a superb 2018 with ODI wins in South Africa and West Indies and the Asia Cup title in the UAE. England also brings back happy memories for the two-time World Cup champions who first lifted the trophy at Lodz in 1983. South Africa, New Zealand and West Indies will also be there as underdogs which have a huge potential to cause upsets on the road to the final. Any of these three countries have a potential to make the final. South Africa has joined the United States and Colombia in the draw for the upcoming 2019 BNP Paribas World Team Cup Finals set to take place in Israel's Larry and Mary Greenspoon Tennis Center in Ramat HaSharon from May 13th to the 18th. Team South Africa secured qualification at the Africa Qualification Tournament in Nairobi, Kenya this past weekend. The men's team comprised of the country's top-ranked player, Evans Maripa, and rising star, Alwandes Kosana, with Wimbledon semi-finalist Kotaso Munjani and Mariska Fenter making up the women's team. Team manager Patrick Silepe says the players will play a number of tournaments to get themselves ready for the World Cup finals. The players need to be informed, the players need to, to be practicing, the players need some tournaments to participate in before the World Cup uh, so that they can be on form when the time comes. So they will be playing different tournaments and different uh, tournaments, obviously, just to, to get a form of uh, you know practices and getting used to and being ready physically and mentally to, to participate in the World Cup. That's a spot at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for programming news and sports from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest.
That's how we come to the end of the show from myself, Luanda Maume, technical producer Catherine Malika and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for joining us. Remember, you can keep in touch with the show. On email, it's info at channelafrica.co.za. On WhatsApp, it's plus 27763003327. On Twitter, it's at channelafrica, the numerical one. Taking us to the top of the hour is the music of Moby Dixon and something so to This one is called Abantu.